for 63 years, God has used the voice of Vance Havner as his preacher. Today, as we were talking in my study, Dr. Havner made this comment about when he began preaching as just a boy, 12 years old. He said, you know, some of them said I wouldn't last. That, that boy preachers just don't last. Well, I'd say right offhand that after 63 years, he's got a pretty good start, wouldn't you? Many of you have been blessed by his books, blessed by his ministry and other conferences, blessed in this pulpit as he has been with us before, and blessed in this state as he has spoken in conventions and conferences here. But he comes again now to bless our hearts and our lives. It is with joy and with a keen sense of anticipation that I introduce to you Dr. Vance Havner, one of God's senior expositors, whom he gave a gift early in life and whom he has honed the gift through the years. Dr. Havner. The ninth chapter of John is the most exciting chapter. Something's happening every moment, and there isn't any good place to stop, but I want to read uh, the first seven verses, <clears throat> and then verses 39 to 41, and assume that you are sufficiently familiar with this account of the healing of the blind man. We will be seeing some other high spots in this narrative, but <clears throat> in the first verses we have the blindness of an individual, and in the last verses the blindness of an institution, Phariseeism. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. <clears throat> I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Then... In verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore, your sin remaineth. <clears throat> this blind beggar was given his sight by our Lord on a Sabbath day. 
And after this miracle, he was brought before the Pharisees, who represented organized religion. But although he was certainly not the equivalent even of a high school graduate, he outwitted all these scribes and scholars and had a ready word for them every time. They excommunicated him, put him out of the church, you might say. But Jesus found him. And the beggar became a believer. Organized religion excommunicated him. But Jesus and the beggar met. And Jesus excommunicated organized religion in this case. It reminds you of Laodicea. Jesus called on Laodicea to repent, but they didn't. And he said, I have one more proposition. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And Campbell Morgan used to say that Jesus excommunicated the whole church of Laodicea and started over with one man. And that's what he does here. Verse 1 says, as Jesus passed by, Jesus was always passing by somewhere and a lot of things happened because nothing that he ever did was incidental. Now you might think just passing by, that's incidental, but some wonderful things happened while he was just passing by. Luke 18:37. they said to the blind man, Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. Mark 2:14. as he passed by, he saw Levi and called him. And you remember in the Old Testament what the Shunammite woman said about Elisha. She said to her husband, I perceive that this is a holy man of God who passes by us continually. That's been the ambition of my life. I'd rather have that said of me than anything else I can think about. I used to have a country church in eastern North Carolina. I walked an awful lot, as I still do. I never had a car on any of my pastures. And uh, I remember one day that the proprietor of a grocery store down the road said to me, Preacher, sometimes I've been low and down and out of sorts. And you walked by and it helped. And I've always prayed that that might be true through the years and whatever else might be said or not said. This could be said this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. And here it was not a holy man of God, but the holy God man who was passing by and always doing things that might appear to be incidental, but nothing he ever did was like that. I think my Lord must have stopped and looked at this blind man with infinite love and compassion. And then the disciples brought up one of those questions. Who sinned in this case? This man, whose parents, reminds you of that other time in Luke 13 when they said, uh, when the Tower of Siloam fell on those folks, well, what was back of all that? Uh, were there, those folks worse sinners than anybody else? And Jesus said, oh no. Uh, that's not the explanation, but that God might be glorified. You remember that uh, when Lazarus was sick and they sent an SOS to Jesus to come, the Bible says that he loved Mary and Martha and exactly because he did. He took his own good time and stayed two extra days. Now, wouldn't you have thought he'd have hurried down there post-haste? We must get there in a hurry. I don't know. Took his time. And uh, he said this sickness 
is not unto death, but that God might be glorified. But it was unto death because Lazarus died. When my dear wife lay so ill, my daily light one morning had this verse in it, this sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified. And I grabbed it and I said, now I'm going to claim that verse. I believe she'll get well. I believe God will heal her. But he didn't. She didn't get well. And then I started checking it all again. I said, and Lazarus died too. But Jesus was looking beyond death. Death was purely incidental. The glory of God was the thing that mattered. And so he took my dear one. But uh, beyond that, there came a blessing and things happened that have made all the difference in the world. A high price, but it added a dimension and added a note. These four years have been the four loneliest years of my life. When you live in motels, a preacher's wife said, I remember in Knoxville when they took us in one night, said, God ought to give an extra medal, it seems to me, to traveling preachers who have to go in after a service into a bleak, lonely motel room and stare at the wall. And that's what we do. But we're not alone, to be sure, but we're human, just the same. And uh, so God didn't heal her, but uh, God was glorified. And the little book that I wrote out of it, and this is the only book of mine I ever mentioned. I'm not a peddler, I'm a preacher, and I don't mention books. Now this one that Doug's got out, uh, you'll have to settle with Doug about that book, you know. He... Uh, uh, I declare, I told him one time, if you don't quit digging into my past, you're going to get me in jail yet in spite of everything. <laughs> but uh, if Doug were not the friend that he's been to me through all these years, I don't know what I'd have been much encouraging anybody else to do. And I, won't, I don't know what to say about this book. It's not by me. It's about me. It's just a bad brag about that. It would be one that I wrote, so I'm going to have to keep kind of quiet and keep up my reputation. But the only other book is this, though I walk through the valley, and that's because I see now the other side of this blessed verse, this sickness was not unto death, but that God might be glorified. And there's hardly a day that I don't get a letter from some dear soul going through the valley. Somebody spoke to me here, a dear lady, who had gone through great sorrow and my, what a blessing, she said it was. That's the best paychecks a preacher ever gets through the years. Now Oswald Chambers thought he was going to get better, and he sees this same verse. But he died. But Mrs. Chambers took his wonderful writings and put them in books and went around the world, my utmost for his highest, and so on. So Jesus said that's the explanation of it, that God may be glorified. In it. And then he put clay, spat on the ground, made clay, and that was a violation of the law of what you're to do on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to make clay on the Sabbath. But he did, and anointed the eyes of this fellow, and that makes you think of the lump of figs in the days of Hezekiah, and he had a ball, and that was used as a remedy, it was a means a symbol 
Baptism's a symbol. The Lord's Supper's a symbol. The visible church is a symbol. There's no life or power in them per se, not of themselves. But along with this mud on this fellow's eyes, Jesus gave a command. And when God touches you, my friend, it's always connected with orders. There's a command. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, another time, a man with the withered hand, he couldn't get it up. Jesus said, stretch forth thy hand. Well, that's the very thing the poor fellow couldn't do if he could have stretched forth his hand. Why, he wouldn't need it to have been there for healing. And uh, take up thy bed and walk. Well, he couldn't. It's the very thing he couldn't do. And yet my Lord says, take up your bed and get going. You see, along with the miracle, along with the touch, along with what God's about to do and here. He did, so far as the first touch is concerned, but the next move was this fellow's move. Now you go wash in the pool of Siloam. I know that salvation, as people have said, is not spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E, because it's accomplished, yes. But after you're saved, there's plenty to do, friend, because you are saved. And I, I, don't, I don't buy this notion that everything's been taken care of and I don't have anything to do. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Be not uh, hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Ye are my friends, if ye do the things which I command you. He that doeth the will of my father, the same as my brother, sister, and mother. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. In the Great Commission, I've quoted this all over the country and purposely have left out two words and then have asked the congregation what two words have I left out. I never, or there are more than half a dozen people in the whole crowd who knew what the words are. Now, I don't know what that proves, but it, it has bothered me through the years. I leave out the words to observe, teaching them to observe. You haven't taught anybody anything. You've taught them to do it. And you haven't learned anything until you've learned to do it. We're not disseminators of information about the gospel merely. To be sure, we, we got to get the word out. But we're to teach them to do it, to observe it. A lot of Bible teaching today is like swimming lessons on dry land. You never learn how to swim on dry land. You've got to make a plunge. And that's just what this man immediately did. Now, God puts mud on our eyes in many ways, beloved. Sometimes he does it with a sermon, sometimes with a song, sometimes with a book, sometimes through a friend, sometimes through a happening, sometimes through great sorrow. And it isn't enough to go around singing, he touched me, and that's a good old song. But it isn't enough to sing that unless you are on your way to doing what he said do next. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Carry out the commandment. John McNeil, that great Scottish preacher, used to say, I, and some of you have had the mud applied and the mud applied and the mud applied. You've had preaching and preaching and preaching. But you've never done the next thing. You've never been to the pool of Siloam. And the mud has caked on your eyes and you're worse off than ever because you didn't do the next thing. There's such a thing as being blinded by an excess of light. 
You stand out if you had stood out today at noon and stared up at the sun. The very thing that gives us light would have taken away what light you have. And if you merely stare at the truth of God and don't walk in the light as he is in the light, something's going to happen and you will be blinded. I, I think we have people in Africa who are blind because they never had the light. And we have some dear people in America blind because they've had too much. They've heard sermons and sermons and sermons and they've been to conferences and conferences and heard preachers and preachers and they've got stacks of notebooks that are stuffed with epigrams. Thy word, if I hid in my notebook, you'd think it's said. And they're no better. They haven't done a blessed thing about obedience and the mud, as McNeil said, has came. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight that knows a plenty. Jesus made the initial touch. You're saved, it may be. But you haven't done the next thing. Every duty we omit obscures some truth we might have known. The prodigal son said... I will arise and go to my father. Now that's a resolution. That's a decision. We're great for decisions. How many decisions? Well, a decision isn't enough. The next verse says, He arose and went to his father. Now that's, that's getting down to business. In the garden, my Lord said to the sleeping disciples, Sleep on now and take your rest. And that's one verse that a lot of church members are certainly obeying. They say, they have certainly followed the Lord in that. But that he didn't stop with that. He said, get up, let's get going, arise, let us be going. And some of them have never done that yet. Some folks during a revival meeting, they wake up, but they don't get up. You've done that many a morning. You woke up and then you went back to sleep and slept more soundly than ever. And I've seen that happen in meetings. Said, right, a great revival. Everybody woke up this week. Next week you were sound asleep again. That's not a revival at all. I sometimes use the simple illustration. Two frogs on the edge of a pond. And one of them uh, decided to jump. I said, how many frogs did that leave? And everybody said one. I said, no, still left two. I didn't say he jumped. <laughs> he just decided to jump. Deciding to jump is not jumping. This blind beggar, have you ever noticed that sometimes God calls us as the next thing to do to do something that looks perfectly ridiculous? Can you imagine this fellow taking off, fumbling, trying to feel his way with this mud all over his eyes to the pool of Siloam and some of his old cronies saw him going down the street, hey, where are you going? I'm trying to get the pool of Solomon. What's the matter with you? You've got mud all over your face. Well, I met a man called Jesus. And he said, go wash this off and I could see. Now, can't you imagine what they just said? The poor boy has lost his marbles. Fumbling his way down the street. It looked perfectly ridiculous. But he did the thing he was told to do. And if you live up to the light you have, you will get more light. Take that next step. And I think of Naaman dying of leprosy, captain in the Syrian army. 
And the little girl, the little servant girl said, Oh, if only he could get to the great prophet. So he took off with uh, sort of an introductory letter from the king and they got there and old Elisha was in there somewhere and uh, this captain thought he will come out and bow and scrape and here I am with all my medals and all my decorations and only Elisha didn't show up at all. He said, go dip in Jordan seven times. And I'm sure Naaman said, well, who does he think I am? He doesn't know who's out here. And he was uh, just about to miss his blessing and some of his crowd said, well, now if he'd have told you to do some big thing, you'd have done it. it Surely it won't, you might give it a try. Jordan, that muddy little creek. We've got better rivers in Damascus, Abaddon, Farpar. Jordan of all places, what do I look like over there going down seven times in that creek? But he went. And it was a little ludicrous, maybe in the eyes of some people, one time, two times, three times, four times, nothing happened. Six times and nothing happened. Uh, but when he carried out the orders, something happened. And then there was Philip who had that big not revival. I've always heard about the great revival in Samaria. That wasn't a revival. That was an evangelistic crusade. Folks got saved. They didn't have anybody over there to revive. They were all dead. Went over there and preached and folks got saved. But it was a terrific evangelistic crusade. God said, now next place for you is go down this road to the desert. And it's desert that way. Philip could have said, Lord, what in the world? Why? Uh, we just had this great meeting. I ought to be getting some publicity about this thing. I want to get out a report of how many decisions. <laughs> you know what I mean. How many decisions were made? That's going to look good in all the denominational annuals and papers and magazines and what have you. Maybe get on TV a little bit. Now you want me to get down here through this desert road? Well, Lord, this is outrageous. That was the next thing to do. And when Saul of Tarsus was converted, there was a preacher who was a who-what preacher. Who art thou, Lord? Lord comes last in the first question. Lord... What do you have me to do? Lord comes first in the second question. When a preacher get, goes at it that way, you see, Paul stated the next thing. What, what do I do now? Who are you? What do I do? Now, here was a man who did not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior. That came later. But he went to the pool of Siloam. He washed and he came back seeing. Jesus is the light of the world. When you obey the light, you'll have more light. Cornelius didn't know all the truth, but he rose to such opportunity as he had and laid hold upon such light as he had. And so did this man. No man ever made a move toward Jesus Christ and, met, and meet with failure. Him that cometh unto me are no wise cast out. I don't believe any poor soul ever tremblingly started toward Jesus Christ, but it worked because he's looking for you too. I, I think of a letter dear Alexander White wrote to a poor soul who was troubled about assurance and she just couldn't feel saved and uh, that great man was such an understanding of like moods because he'd been along that, said, my dear lady, 
When that multitude out in the wilderness faced that snake on a pole, that brazen serpent, there were several hundred thousand out there, and the man on the back row couldn't possibly have made out the outlines of that snake. But God didn't tell him to see, he told him to look. When that multitude out in the wilderness faced that snake on a pole, that brazen serpent, there were several hundred thousand out there, and the man on the back row couldn't possibly have made out the outlines of that snake. But God didn't tell him to see, he told him to look. That did something for me one time in my life, doctor. Uh, I was having problems. Along this same, and then this dear man said, throw yourself in the general direction of Jesus Christ. I like that. And I said, Lord, maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm not praying right. Maybe I'm not repenting right. I was in a low state, but I said, Lord, if I knew how to do it any better, I would. And here I come. I've been, I've been shaky about was I saved or not. I asked Dr. Chriswell. We were down in the conference in, in Florida, and one night we rode back to the hotel. I said, I read somewhere that you had problems as a young preacher about assurance. And I want to know it from you. Well, how about that? Yes, yes. I said, I'd preach on Sunday morning. That night I'd be on my knees and just couldn't get satisfied, just couldn't get settled and sure. Said finally, I had to come to the place that I rested on God. He that believeth hath everlasting life. And I said, Lord, that's what it says. And I believe it, and I believe Him. And at the last day, I'm going to stand and say, That's what it said, and that's what I've stood on. Nobody can doubt that that man preaches with assurance these days. So if I speak to somebody tonight who's a little shaky, maybe. Oh, if you just head in the direction of my Lord. He's looking for you. But when this man came back, seeing now that's the next step. Oh, there are other wonderful things going to happen to him. Not saved yet, not an out-and-out believer. He didn't know who Jesus was, but here he is. He's making progress. Bless my soul if the next thing he ran into wasn't trouble. Wouldn't you have thought that everything would be lovely now? And guess who caused the trouble? Not the bums and the bootleggers, but the religious crowd. Organized religion. And although this plain man was more than a match for these scribes and scholars, what a tragic thing that here's a brand new man with a brand new experience. The first thing he runs into is organized religion. And that's not the first time nor the only time that's happened. But he had one great advantage. He had met Jesus Christ. There had not come a full experience yet, but he'd met Jesus Christ and he'd been touched. And the more he talked, the more progress he made. In verse 11, he called him a man called Jesus. In verse 17, he called him a prophet. In verse 33, he said he's of God, but he hadn't got out of the bushes yet, not completely. But the more he said, the madder they got. And they threw him out of church. They put him out of the synagogue. But Jesus looked on him and found him. My Lord's looking for folks that have been thrown out sometimes of even organized religion. 
And the blind beggar became a believing disciple and worshipped. Jesus said, do you believe on the Son of God? Now this is the test. It was with the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the minute the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe that he's the Son of God, then they baptized him. Then Philip baptized him. Here everything turns on this. He said, well, if you, if you can tell me who he is, I will. And he said, I am he. And that ought to be enough to convince anybody about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he was saved. And then my Lord made one of the most solemn pronouncements and one of the most serious charges that he ever made about anybody in his life. When he said this thing about organized religion and uh, people have been bothered a bit about that for judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind and some of the Pharisees said uh, you mean us are we blind too he said if you were blind you wouldn't have any sin but the trouble with you is you think you see and your sin remains all these three years of my Lord's ministry, he was in constant conflict with organized religion. And it reached its climax right along here and ended at the cross. That is, ended so far as that phase. It goes on and on in another sense. Remember that the Pharisees now were in the Mosaic succession. Jesus said in the very first verses of Matthew 23, that terrific sermon where the most scathing things ever said about anybody on earth were said by my Lord. But he said, now they're in Moses' seat. You do what they say, but don't do like they do. There was a time when it was the right thing to win converts to the law of Moses. But it had become so corrupt that Jesus said, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when you've made him, he's twofold more the child of hell than you are. What an awful thing to say. And I wonder if it isn't possible for organized religion today to put on the drives for more members without the Spirit of God being in the business. And we take in a raft of new church members and make them twofold more the child of hell than those we already have are. It's a frightening possibility. There's no more stinging, blasting, colorful condemnation of sin on record. Hypocrites, blind guides, Straining out gnats and swallowing camels, whited sepulchres, snakes, killers of prophets. And mind you, the worst opposition my Lord ever had and the crowd that spearheaded the movement that put him on the cross went to church, read the Bible, prayed in public, all of them tithers, separated from the world, tried to win others, and went to hell. It's amazing how good you can be and not make it to heaven. Everything that I've just mentioned, we ought to do. But you can do all that and not make it. The publicans and the harlots will get there before you, he said. So here you have organized religion facing my Lord. And he said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Verse 33 of that 23rd chapter. Now that conflict between Jesus Christ and organized religion is still going on. 
Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not harping on the, the establishment. Now, you have to have an establishment. You have to have a structure. If you tear down one, you're going to have another. These folks that wanted a few years ago and they wanted to burn down everything and put up a new one, of course, they're trying to do it again other ways. You've got to have some kind of a structure. My daddy used to keep bees. He loved to work with bees. They'd run me a mile to get to sting me, but my father could work with them. Get along fine. And you could see through a wind in those hives, and it's a marvelous thing the way those little fellows work. And they've got sense enough to know that if you're going to have any honey, you've got to have a structure, so they put up the honeycomb. Because if you didn't have honeycomb, they'd drown in their own honey. And if you don't have a structure, that's what you'll do. But here, it was a structure, a religion that had gone dead. Like the church at Sardis. Thou hast a name that thou livest. Now, this wasn't a church that had a reputation of being dead. It had a reputation to be a live church. I think the circles were all circulating. The committees were all committeeing. And everything was going on according to order. You know, a mortician can make a dead man look better than he ever did while he's living. <laughs> and we have church morticians today, church experts. They don't call them that exactly, but they can take a church and uh, work on it, have a lot of drives and one thing and another, make it look a whole lot more alive. It's dead still in the eyes of God. And Laodicea, thou sayest I'm rich and you don't know your condition. In John 9, the structure was so backslidden that it excommunicated a blind man who had just been touched by the Holy Spirit. What kind of depths can religion get to that here's a man seeing for the first time in his life? They should have said hallelujah. And just because it had been done and that clay had been mixed on the Sabbath, they put him out. Now, I'm for keeping the Lord's Day. Don't misunderstand me. One of the sins of today is that we're not doing it. But can you imagine getting into such a state? Yes, I can, because I see it every once in a while. That organized religion will fuss about some little unworthy matter and fail to rejoice over sinners coming home to God. In the temple, when Jesus cleansed the temple, they had a revival there. The lame came in limping and went out leaping, and the blind came in sightless and went out seeing, and everybody was happy except the Pharisees, same old crowd. They had a little caucus over on one side, and they came to Jesus and said, Hear us thou. The children were waving palm branches and crying, Hosanna, and these Pharisees said, These kids are making too much racket in the temple. Jesus said, yes, and have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou was perfect in praise. You let a revival break out in some churches today, and there'll be a gathering of the Pharisees over on one side. They'll say, we don't like it. Too much emotion. Same crowd that can yell like a Comanche Indian at a football game, sit like a wooden Indian in church on Sunday morning. <laughs> Too much emotion. There is many a young Christian today who almost gets his faith jolted out of him the first few weeks. 
by the attitude of some people he thought were saints and Christians. You've already referred to it when I started as a boy at 12. I'm sorry to say that some of the worst criticism I had was some of it from ministers. Religious folks. Oh, it's a, he's got a gimmick. It'll, you know, nothing to it. Old Sam Jones, when God called him to preach that great George evangelist, he was a drunken lawyer when God saved him. And his wife said, I married a lawyer. I didn't marry a preacher. I can't go with you to Methodist conference. I, 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 I didn't marry a preacher. And old Sam got alone with God and he said, Now God, you call me to preach. If she won't go along, I'll be the best grass widower I know how to be. But I'm going to preach. And he got ready to take off for conference next morning. That night she became deathly sick. And she said, Lord, if you will touch me, I'll be the best preacher's wife I know how to be. <laughs> and was. And then he started preaching, and he preached so rough that the first meeting he had, they said, can't take this. And that time said, Sam, you don't have to, you, you can't preach like that. So he headed off for that prayer place again. He said, Lord, it's the only way I know how to preach. He said, uh, if we die, we'll try to get the report out we died of typhoid fever or something. But he, he said, I got to pre preach this way. It's the only way I know how. Then God spoke to my soul and said, go back and preach just like you've been preaching. He said, I preached hotter than ever that night and the revival broke. And things took a turn. There are critical times in the life of a preacher and there are five-minute periods in the life of a preacher when everything's settled for failure or success. If Sam Jones had modified and softened down, he might never have been heard from. And Billy Sunday was the same way. He started out trying to talk like other folks. He found out that wouldn't work. He said, I loaded up the old gun with the rough on rats and barbed wire and everything else. Then I went to preaching. And they said, you're rubbing the fur the wrong way. I said, I don't let the cat turn around. Don't you let anybody disturb you out of your joy in Jesus Christ and your liberty in the gospel. Don't make a fool out of yourself, no. But don't let folks cheat you out of that. If God called you to preach a certain way that's native to you, go ahead and preach that way. Learn some lessons as you go, but preach. And live for Jesus. And if the Pharisees have a caucus, have a little committee meeting, don't pay attention to a committee meeting. Go ahead. I tell you, a man who's had a new touch from Jesus and then has met the Savior, that man's always disturbing. He always will be. You see, his glowing testimony turns the light on these folks that are living out here in the dark. And as this age draws near its close, this conflict's going to get hotter. And the contrast more pronounced. In a sense, these Pharisees had had mud put on their eyes. They'd had the law of Moses. That was a work of God. They'd had the message of the prophets, but they had not done the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The man who was blind and knew he was blind came and was healed. 
And these folks who thought they understood it all and had all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed were blind as a bat and they couldn't see a thing. Jesus said, you know it all. This fellow's a brand new convert. He doesn't know much. Oh, I like to meet a brand new convert who doesn't know much but knows Jesus Christ. That's exciting. You know, the happiest fellow in the world is a brand new Christian before he's met too many Bible scholars. <laughs> doesn't know any better than just to believe the Lord. So here he is. God has kept this thing from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes. I want to ask you tonight, beloved. Have you had the mud applied? Have you had a touch? You say, I'm saved. All right. Have you been to the pool of Siloam? Have you followed in obedience? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you do, then you belong to the true church of the blind who now see and not to the excommunicated church, and we may have more on that role than we have on the other one. And they don't know it. Of folks who, they'd be insulted to death if you told them so. But they think, me? Well, I was brought up in it. I know the language. I've been a church worker. I go regular. I give my tithe. I pray in public. Read the Bible. I'm not a worldly Christian. Neither were the Pharisees. And Jesus said the publicans and harlots will get there before you. Heard of a woman who said to her husband when he came in from the day's work, something very strange happened today. Somebody knocked at the door, and when I opened it, a stranger was standing there, and he asked me, point blank, do you know Jesus Christ? She said I didn't know what to say. I stood there with my hand on the doorknob and stared at him, glared at him, closed the door in his face. Her husband said, well, why didn't you tell him that you remember the church and president of the missionary union teacher of the ladies' Bible class? She said, that's not what he asked me. And I'd like to close by asking you what that man asked her. Have you been to Siloam and come back seeing? And do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you met him and do you know Jesus Christ?